Hello, everyone, and welcome to another CRISPR Journal podcast brought to you by Horizon Discovery. This is our mini-series with Horizon on functional genomics. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the ever-expanding CRISPR toolbox, and in particular, the rise of CRISPR modulation techniques. And I have a, a real expert to discuss this topic with. It's Steve Smith, who's a product manager with Horizon Discovery based in Colorado, I believe. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Hey, Kevin. I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Good. Very well. Let me set the stage and then we will get your tips and tricks and thoughts on CRISPR modulation strategies and technologies and uh, ways that Horizon is helping legions of researchers around the world, I suspect, get involved in this exciting area of research. I probably don't need to tell this audience that over the past five to eight years, we've seen nothing short of a CRISPR revolution for ubiquitous gene editing. But researchers have also been looking for tools that build on the fundamentals of CRISPR, offering different cellular effects specifically tools that enable gene modulation instead of editing CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I in particular. And we've talked about these in one or two of the earlier episodes in this series, in particular, uh, look for the episode that we had, uh, the discussion we had with Sally Chi from Stanford a little while ago. Loss of function studies alone are often not enough to fully elucidate gene function. Gene activation via CRISPR-A can help interrogate cellular effects in different ways than gene inactivation within wild-type and mutant backgrounds. CRISPR-A has helped identify complementary interactions compared to CRISPR-KO, CRISPR-I, or even siRNA. Conversely, CRISPR-I offers additional novel components within the CRISPR toolbox, a non-permanent method for gene knockdown. While CRISPR-KO causes the now familiar double-stranded break and permanent gene inactivation, CRISPR-I shuts down gene expression at the transcriptional level for a particular time. Benefits include the ability to silence essential genes, and there's relevance for the study of both coding and non-coding genes. And additionally, as science continues to address reproducibility, there is merit in choosing multiple tools that use disparate pathways to demonstrate and then validate results. So in the next uh, 20 minutes or so, we look forward to discussing how various methods and approaches help reinforce reproducible science. And here to provide all of the expert knowledge that you might wish for is Steve Smith, as I say, from Horizon. Steve, tell us a little bit about your own background and how long you've been at Horizon. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for the nice introduction there. It's a cool time. It's a really interesting space that we have a lot of fun working with our collaborators on there. People are doing such cool stuff out there. This is a great time to be, as you well know, involved in this space. Your recommendation of going back to listen to one of the early episodes with Stanley Chi, fascinating stuff. The right person to catch up on how this all came about. And that was a great episode you did with him. So thank you for that and for pointing that out to anybody that goes back a few episodes on that's really worth a good listen. Horizon Discovery, we're a company in two sites based here in lovely Colorado. We've already had a torrential snowfall this year, believe it or not. We had our first blizzard of the year and the rest of our sites in Cambridge in the UK. We're a company focused on all avenues of gene expression, gene modulation. We do a lot of services. So we do screening services and cell engineering services. So we break up into a bunch of different business units, all focused on working with cells and helping researchers study pathways and do drug discovery work, all that sort of good stuff. Let's get a bit of your background, and then you can sure. tell us a bit about your specific role at Horizon in gene modulation. Yeah, so I come out of a cell biology background. I've done a lot of microscopy and work on membrane functions and cellular receptors and all that kind of good stuff. I've been with Horizon Discovery about a year and a half now, working on the gene modulation portfolio. 
Horizon has the legacy Dharmacon business. Horizon acquired the Dharmacon site, which is the Colorado operation that's done siRNA work for 20 years now. So we break all the modulation products, siRNA and CRISPR-A and all the other shRNAs and cDNAs and ORFs and all those sorts of switching genes on and off fall into my portfolios. Great. So I talked in the introduction about CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A or CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I in broad terms. For those in the audience listening who might be new to these applications, can you first of all give us sort of a broad picture of what Horizon offers in terms of products or reagents or services for folks who are just starting to dabble in these sorts of experiments? Yeah, you bet. The CRISPR world, as you mentioned, the CRISPR universe has been a, has stormed science, right? And this has become that jet set, that cornerstone foundational technique that is employed in so many labs. There's been these other sort of associated tools, CRISPR-A in particular, and it's been around for almost as long as CRISPR knockout, but they're acting epigenetically, right? So these CRISPR tools that don't act in introducing a DNA break and then repair and gene inactivation, the CRISPR modulation toolbox would involve things that would act as gene modulators to turn genes on or turn genes off in a temporary fashion. Extremely interesting and extremely useful. Horizon is very interested and active in both of these. Some of these products are commercially available today and some aren't. So we'll talk through that. We're super keen on them. And I guess part of the take-home message or ask from anybody listening is we're very interested in listening to researchers that are wanting to put these techniques to good use through the info link on our website. If you put my name in it, I would love to have a conversation with anybody out there that's interested in these CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I. We do have a full line of CRISPR-A products. So we by reagent And right now we are only doing CRISPR-I in a screening fashion. So our screening group does parallel genome-wide screens that work on a dual screen to look at CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I in tandem to help work through gene functions. What are some of the most interesting or exciting applications that you're seeing perhaps amongst your clients or maybe elsewhere? What can these technologies, CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I, what can they do if you can maybe share some of those highlights uh, in a minute or two? Yeah, sure. There's a couple of things that we're really excited about, Kevin, that we're seeing come out. And it's been really quite interesting because there's been a really nice building volume and velocity of publications and work picking up recently on people doing CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I in neat ways. I think some of the things that will be the killer applications for this that you'll see come out are um, multiplexing. So that's one that, you know, we've done a lot of work in siRNAs and gene knockdowns with RNAi pathways. The CRISPR modulation portfolio or toolbox kind of introduces a new opportunity for multiplexing. I think even Stanley, she mentioned in his episode about even some potential for multiplexing, you know, switching some on and some off to interrogate these really complex network pathways. So that's just fascinating for us. I think that's just an extremely interesting thing. You know, the genes and pathways interacting, you know, by layers with one another, complementary or competitive pathways, super, super interesting. So I think that the CRISPR-A, CRISPR-I makes that possible, makes that intensive multiplexing work really viable. The other piece, I think the um, essential genes, as you see people doing various screens and wanting to do follow-on work in essential genes, CRISPR knockout becomes a <laughs> not the best tool for that, of course, right? So I think being able to get in and either inactivate or activate, particularly the CRISPR-I, I guess, in this case, for inactivating essential genes presents a nice opportunity for follow-on work out of screens. 
also really interested in the sort of non-coding bits, right? The being nuclear in effect, this lets you have a nice opportunity to work on those controllers, on those non-coding genes. It was funny, they were all the rage, what, five or six years ago. Everybody was super interested in the long non-codings. They've gone a little bit out of fashion. And my hunch is that's a effect of not having great tools to get in and work on them. So I think with the CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A, tools to go in and really uh, interrogate those non-coding controller genes. I think we'll see some exciting work come out of that, Kevin. I mean, I think that the careful enhancement of expression in iPSCs is really cool. We've done some internal work and published a paper recently that showed the stem cells being able to go in and, you know, work on those genes in iPSCs is a cool way to kind of work on directed differentiation, things like that. A term I keep bumping into is orthogonal validation. I wonder if we could spend a little time talking about that. Where does the idea of orthogonal validation fit within the CRISPR-A, CRISPR-I spectrum? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic for us. I've been tracking just as a personal interest and also as relates to this, you mentioned it in the intro, some of the reproducibility crisis, and that's maybe a bit um, dramatic, but it's the idea of orthogonal validation and producing more reproducible science, the thought to do multiple methods, right? So to use a couple approaches. So looking across the gene modulation toolbox, including uh, CRISPR techniques, RNAi techniques, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can achieve a particular end result, right? So the end result by phenotype, what we would encourage and what good science would encourage is having an additional pathway to show that end result. So whether that, you know, using two methods of an inactivator, right? So to, to get to use two really disparate pathways. So to take two paths to get to a particular phenotypic end result uh, makes for good validated studies. Uh, to look at inverse phenotypes, right? To choose, um, you know, inactivation and inactivation like we do in the combined screens is really useful too, to sort of interrogate different parts of the pathway, turn, you know, look at things that you can switch on, things you can switch off, and then really have uh, more confidence in your phenotype. So that idea of orthogonal validation um, is an important one. It's something that you're hearing more and more people talk about the need to sort of drive to a particular end result by multiple pathways. It's good science, right? And it's a way to get into more robust results. Yeah. Is it exclusive to CRISPR-based tools? Not necessarily. There's a whole lot of ways to get to that result. So certainly as the CRISPR toolbox expands, there's a nice way to use kind of multiple flavors of CRISPR tool to get there. And then also even, you know, siRNA is, is tried and true. It's a nice, simple, robust way to show a knockdown phenotype as well. Okay. What about screening? You touched on this a little bit earlier, Steve. Um, can CRISPR modulation tools help with screening follow-on studies? Yeah, definitely. We've heard this really distinct, um, specific feedback from customers where in going through a screen and seeing hits, particularly in the like essential gene regions, that CRISPR knockout doesn't lend itself to those follow-on studies if you want to go interrogate uh, essential genes. We've heard from folks that just say, well, I have to just shuffle those to the bottom. I have to deprioritize those hits even as they may be a quarter of someone's hits that come up into that essential gene uh, range that they then, you know, sort of shuffle to the bottom of the list and work on other pathways that they can get to with CRISPR knockout. So the modulation tools, I think are really important in that, Kevin, as you see screens and, um, you know, get that target list to have modulation techniques where you can come in and specifically target them with CRISPR pathways, but still maintain viability. This is delicate. I mean, this is really cool work, right? Because you have to titrate it enough so it has an effect on the phenotype, but not so much that it kills off the cell. So I think these modulation techniques are going to give you really the best shot at getting to some of those follow-on studies that are going to be important. 
Okay. Is there anything new in this space that's particularly noteworthy that you'd like to comment on? Not yet. We have a full line of CRISPR-A products. Uh, we do the CRISPR-I and screening. Nothing new yet, but it's a very high interest for us. Okay. Well, that's a good segue to uh, my next question, which is, will a commercially available CRISPR-I, what are the prospects for that? And will it spell the end for siRNA? Mm, right. Wow. Yeah, I think not. I think there's a lot of reasons why they're not mutually exclusive or one would shut down the other. I think the prospects are good for commercially available CRISPR-I. I think it's coming. I think it has to, right? It's just too useful not to be out in a reagent products. So, um, you know, SINA has proven so robust and reliable, I think it will always find a place. And I think you see labs that have a particular preference to one or the other. Um, you know, people are now growing up in the sciences in a CRISPR world, right? So they may have affinity or comfort with those techniques. I think the SI techniques, as we've seen those develop into even pharmacological agents, as you've seen drug discovery work, really um, rely on SI. I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon, Kevin. I truly believe that. Uh, I think that, you know, again, there's a place for a variety of these techniques. And I think that you'll see people employ multiple methods, as we mentioned, and use one to reinforce the other as we go. Just a couple of final questions before we close. We had a really good episode um, recently in this series talking about uh, screening in primary cells. And I mm. just wanted to pick up on that. Are there any practical limitations or advantages to using one CRISPR method over others? Yeah, I listened to that episode. You know, primary cells are all the rage, right? Understandably so. Researchers have really gravitated towards primary cells as they want to show the most biologically relevant uh, model system, right? There's lots of challenges in science, right? And all these engineered um, cell systems, I used to, we used to get that one a lot and work we presented uh, in the lab that, you know, the biological relevance piece of it is key. And so you see people gravitating more and more to primary cells We've worked hard in that. We've done a lot of work internally to validate our products, you know, in particular, right? You're seeing um, iPSCs and immune cells, right? Are awesome targets for these sort of studies and people want to work in them. So all these techniques uh, work really well in primary cells. People seem to have really good luck and good success with iPSCs, uh, T cells, working across there. So one CRISPR method over another, I think there's reasons to choose one over others. Um, people have just demonstrated CRISPR-A in neuron cells. So you're seeing really cool stuff. And there's reasons why you might choose a CRISPR knockout versus a CRISPR-I, but they all work really well in this blossoming field of primary cell work. It sounds like in the field of gene modulation, uh, which is your area of expertise and specialty, and you've got your hands full, it's going to be a very exciting next few years, particularly as people get back into the lab and uh, yes. begin to put into practice all of the cool things they've been planning during their enforced uh, isolation. Uh, so any mm -hmm. final thoughts, Steve? What are you looking forward to over the next 12, 24 months? Yeah, I hope so, Kevin. I think it's been a cool uh, time to be around this. This makes for quite fun discussion with friends and people hear what some of the folks we get to work with are doing. It's so incredibly cool. It's what would have been science fiction not all that long ago. And so to see it all in front of us and to be part of it is just so extremely cool. And so I think what I'm looking forward to is just as you hear folks like Stanley Chi and you know this group that um, out of, you know, Alabama, Birmingham that showed this work in uh, non-dividing neuronal cells. I mean, just, just seeing this and, and having the chance to work with any of that is so fun, so rewarding, so challenging. Uh, we certainly encourage any conversations or, you know, if you want to do crazy things or have ideas that, you know, we love hearing stuff like that. So for me, that's the next 12, 24 months as more products do come out in this space and you're seeing the continued blossoming of the CRISPR toolbox. I mean, who knows what else these clever scientists will come up with, right, Kevin? It's a lot of fun. And so I'm just blown away and and, you know, excited every day to check it out, see what's going on out there. 
And Steve, just finally to pick up sure. on something you said at the beginning, there is a way for researchers to reach out to you and impose on your time if they just want to kind of explore ideas. Absolutely. No commitment well, necessary. No, absolutely. Like I said, it's the most fun part of what we get to do. More than welcome. Steve.Smith at Horizon Discovery is me. Or if our info, if you get to our website and hit our info email and just put my name in it somewhere that we're pretty good about yeah. writing stuff out. So we'd love to have these discussions, Kevin. And that's part of why we do this series and put these things out there is because Right. Um, these science is just so cool, right? It's so much fun to be a part of, and we welcome any crazy ideas or crazy things you want to talk about. Or if, as you hear CRISPR I, CRISPR A, seeing things come out in the literature, we'd love to help folks get going with it. Well, that's a very optimistic and constructive note upon which to end our discussion. Steve Smith, product manager with Horizon Discovery. Steve, thank you very much indeed for your time. Kevin, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks to Horizon Discovery for sponsoring this uh, entire series, which is incredibly educational and I hope uh, useful to you as you're planning or executing particular experiments. And uh, most of all, thanks to you for listening to this entire episode and indeed this entire series. I'm Kevin Davis. On behalf of everyone at the CRISPR Journal, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you very soon for another episode in this Horizon Discovery podcast series. For now, goodbye.